Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this rip is Seb Bunny and we are going to go down the rabbit hole and personal life experience he has faced of holding on to your kids. Uh, Seb is not a parent yet, but he's going to make one hell of a one when he uncovers what he's about to uncover in this episode. We both met at the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference in Prague, which, by the way, is going to happen again this year, 14th, 15th of October. Make sure you look at getting yourself some tickets for that one. It's a nice small event, very freedom-focused, put on by the Free Cities Foundation. And Seb and I realized we'd, we were talking about the same book that we had read, and he'd met my family, and he was very impressed with the... The way that the kids could socialize even though they uh, weren't inside of a schooling system and we started going down the rabbit hole and we decided to do a pod about this book it's by uh, Gabor Marte and Dr. Gordon Neufeld and it's called Hold On To Your Kids and Why It Has Shaped Seb's Thinking. Excellent Bitcoiner also involved in the uh, the Looking Glass project with Daz, Bay, Beer, Bayer our boy Daz, the Prince of Darkness from Australia, who's also been on the show a couple of times. Anyway, before we get into this one, please make sure you are stacking some sats. If you've not noticed, Bitcoin is up 52% year to date. Oh my god, it's dead. It's going to zero. No, it's not, and you should have been dollar cost averaging. If you were not, please start. Swan Bitcoin, Relay, they have your best interests at heart. You can set up auto buys with them in the US, swanbitcoin.com across europe relay.ch they also have a private white glove service and they have an onboarding process now for businesses so let's get going coincorner.com have you covered throughout uk and europe set up a merchant account if you are a small to medium-sized enterprise or just a lone entrepreneur start accepting bitcoin in your business they've got you they can help you get that set up is very easy or you can use this to orange pill your butchers, barbers, candlesticks makers, whoever it is that you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. If you want KYC free sats, if you want to stay as private as possible, use hodlhodl.com. Hit the link in the show notes, you'll save on commission. That's a global peer-to-peer -peer trading platform. Buy Bitcoin with HodlHodl and stay completely anonymous. You can also get to their conference in Riga, which is going to be the first weekend of September. There's going to be no discounts on those tickets, so just go rip them. WasabiWallet.io Download it, create a wallet, run some sats through it, sit back and watch the magic happen as they coin join for you those Satoshis. Then, cold storage. Off to cold storage with those sats. What you're doing is you're up in your privacy game. You've got a few hops there from your original purchase. Even if it's on HODL HODL, you can still run them through Wasabi or another coin join service if you so wish how many hops as dojiji would often say to any bitcoiner shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten is going to get you five percent discount on the bitbox 02 bitcoin only hardware wallet 
Enjoy this rip with Seb. And we are recording. How you doing, Seb? I'm doing great. It is honestly a pleasure to be on here. I've listened to so many of your episodes and it's definitely been a big contributor to my personal orange pilling journey. Well, thank you. What do you think of that, Lauren? That's nice to hear. Um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. See, you never know who you're inspiring. I don't know if you remember, Lauren, but we met in Prague. And uh, yeah, we, we hung out, uh, had dinner one night in Prague. And uh, you were telling me about your own personal orange pilling journey and your dad's talks about Bitcoin. I told you you'd met in Prague. The first time we met in Prague was over by the coffee machine and we were just uh, talking and uh, with Seb's girlfriend there as well. Thing is, Daddy, you talk to everyone. Yeah. So. Especially about Bitcoin. <laughs> what do you think about Bitcoin? Sorry? What do you think about Bitcoin? Well, by now, I think Bitcoin is... <laughs> now I know what it feels like to for the other people when I ask them this question. Uh -huh. uh, on how people on um, how people because I've seen a lot of things on where people have to wait a couple days for the money to go through and then they have to pay a fee which is kind of unfair because you're supposed to send that money a couple days ago and then you have to pay a fee but uh with bitcoin you could also go with lightning wallet and that normally that normally goes faster you pay a tiny fee and that's it and it basically gives you the freedom to do whatever you want that is amazing I, th I think that just with that knowledge there, you are already above 99% of the world. So you're on your journey. Thank you. Do you have a question for Seb? Yeah, my question is, what do you like about Bitcoin? Technically the same. What do way. I like about Bitcoin? You know what? I would say that in a world that is built up on trust, I like the fact that Bitcoin is trustless, that we don't have to rely on trust and we can be our authentic selves and no one can stop us from being our authentic selves. So I think that... That is that is why I'm very pro Bitcoin. Hmm. I'm I'm seeing if there's other questions because you answered that faster. <laughs> um, hmm. Have you got anyone into Bitcoin? Like, for example, an Uber driver or something like that? Because my dad does that all the time. You know what? I would say that, to be honest, my most proud orange pilling moment is actually like orange pilling my mom. Because my mom is like very much a like traditionalist. She's very pro-government, things like that. And then since the pandemic, I've been able to slowly like infiltrate with lots of little hints that maybe the world isn't trending in the direction that most people thought. And uh, just recently, I've managed to get her into a cold storage and invest part of her pension into Bitcoin, which is, I, I think that is a huge, huge step. But outside of that, it's a tough one because I think that when you are a online persona, you impact people, but you don't necessarily know who you impact. And so I think it would be interesting. Sometimes you always wonder, uh, well, actually, I, I wonder this, maybe other people don't wonder this, but if at the end of your life, uh, 
you get a list of all of the achievements you've achieved in life, how many steps you've taken, how many miles you've swam, all of these things. I'd love to see who are the people that you orange pilled that you had no idea that you orange pilled. And I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. And then how, how do you even count it, Lauren? Because the people that you orange pill, they're going to go and orange pill maybe another 100 people themselves over the course of their life who will then go and orange. See, this is why it doesn't, this is why we've already won. This is why Bitcoin is inevitable. The network effect. Word gets out quick. It does, especially if something offers as much value as Bitcoin does. Especially if you care about it that much, you talk to every single person about it. Mm -hmm. But it's better well, for Se it's better for Seb and I. And it's better for you and Mummy and everybody else. The more people that start using biz uh, Bitcoin, the the better for everybody because it changes the way that we start interacting with each other. Like Seb was saying, we we don't now have to live in this world of oh, yes, sure, Mr. Banker, I'll trust you'll look after my money. Where there's been, you know, flagrant breaches of that trust our whole lives. I think we the other thing that is so important as well is we all have values and we all have opinions. And I think that in a world that is not necessarily built on trust and one that cannot we cannot be silenced, it is so important to be able to share what it is that we value and what we admire and what direction we want to kind of push the world in. Because... In general, I think a lot of people feel like they're voiceless. They feel as if what they say doesn't matter. But if everyone thinks that, then those who want to kind of push a certain narrative will win. And so I think that the key is just to, like you talk about orange pilling, you always share your thoughts. But the thing is, I think everyone should. I think everyone should share. If you're passionate about something, you shouldn't be scared about sharing it uh, because of fear of rejection or fear that someone is going to try and shut you down. Because in the end, you are being shut down by not sharing it. Okay. Wise words. Mm. Well, do you want to say goodnight to Seb? Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Night. Hopefully I'll see you again at a, a conference maybe this year. Yeah. Anyways, yep. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. All right, mate. Uh, yeah, let's get into it. We, we've got a lot to discuss. Um, yeah, I do remember... Uh, Meeting you in person at Prague, that was uh, that was a great moment. Uh, I'd obviously listened to you. I think I'd heard you on John Vallis's podcast, um, maybe some others, but uh, but big shout out to Daz. We'll get that one in early, mate, uh, because uh, you know you you guys have been working together anyway on uh, on your education project. Which actually, why don't we start there? Why don't you tell the listeners, you know, what what you guys put together with with Daz and um. Some of the other guys, I know Greg was helping as well. For sure. Yeah. And you know what? Like to start going back to Daz, what I think is just so freaking phenomenal about Bitcoin is this fact that you meet these people that are distributed all over the world and you may have never met them in person, but you build such strong relationships and friendships with these individuals. And so my birthday is coming up and Daz just today, only like an hour ago, an Amazon package arrived and I'm like, I haven't ordered anything off of Amazon. And uh, in this package, Daz has just sent me a book on like basically self-sustainability, how to be more resourceful as individuals. Cause we talk about this a lot. And, and I just think that I would never have expected to have built like a lifelong friend, someone that I truly, truly admire without Bitcoin. Bitcoin is truly brought together. It's kind of that magnet that brings everyone together. And so that kind of stems into looking glass. And so a little while back, I decided, you know what? I want to start writing. I love trying to educate people. And traditionally, 
I've been a mountain bike instructor. And so I try to teach people about how to jump, how to corner, how to break, these kind of things. But I found as if I wasn't making as big of an impact as I believed I could. And I had a passion with finance, but I didn't know how to kind of connect these two dots. And so when the pandemic hit, I decided, you know what? I'm gonna quit my job. Like Bitcoin is calling me. And since then I've just dedicated my time to Bitcoin. And so I started writing, started writing about how Bitcoin solves many of the issues. Bitcoin fixes this. And uh, from there, Greg reached out uh, as he read one of my articles and he was like, hey, I want to introduce you to a couple of other like-minded individuals. And so this was in, I think about July or August of 2021. And then since then, that's kind of how Looking Glass formed. We just kind of came together with the goal of trying to write content for the average person, write content for the developing countries in the lower class. Because if you want to dive into... Bitcoin from a philosophical standpoint, awesome. You can see like Breedlove. If you want to dive into finance from a technical standpoint, there are countless books out there. But the thing that's really tough is that many of this, these topics and many of these articles don't necessarily speak in a non-jargon way, in a way that appeals to someone who has no background in finance, someone who is that blue collar worker. So Looking Glass, our goal is really just to speak to the average person, speak to the person who is most impacted by a breakdown in our monetary systems and kind of that's that's how looking glass kind of came about and you've been translated into portuguese already big shout out to andre and, and nico and the uh, the free madeira org that uh, are doing some work with you as well 100 percent. and again this goes back to like the bitcoin community it, it truly like what well, never ceases to amaze me at how when you put yourself out there and you're just like you know what we want to support education we i think we've had 12 or 13 individuals reach out and translate a lot of our content into whether it's Portuguese, whether it's Swahili, whether it is uh, Spanish, like many of these different languages. And it is, it's just phenomenal just to see a group of individuals come together for a bigger cause. And I think I've said this on a couple other pods, but it's one of the biggest things about Bitcoin that just like blows my mind is like, when you think about the U S dollar, no one, not a single person I know is dedicating their life to the US dollar. And like, I want to preach about the US dollar. Whereas when it comes to Bitcoin, you've got people from such disparate backgrounds, like completely uh, unpartisan when it comes to like their political sides. And all they want to do is try to educate people about the importance of sound money. And so I, th- I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, I love Daz as well. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's, he's done a, a very deep dive into his own personal fiat job, which is looking after the grid of his local town, right? And um, helping everybody understand all of, all of the moving parts of, of how a grid works. And it, it is so great to to go down into those stories of, of the plebs, what they're doing in their day-to-day. And then I had a thunderstorm at home and uh, some of our appliances got knocked out. And before you know it, I had Daz on a WhatsApp video call. I was on my knees under the washing machine, pulling out the electrical board, and he was talking me through it. Like, <laughs> it's great. It is yeah. awesome. And it, it's just such a, I think like this book that Daz gave me for my birthday about like being resourceful. I think what is so phenomenal about the Bitcoin community is in general, because everyone comes from such different backgrounds, the community in general is just so resourceful. You can put out a question on Twitter and within an hour or two, you have multiple responses and it can be about health and nutrition. It can be about electricity. It can be about finance, whatever it is. And people will have questions that you have professionals in this space willing to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. So pleb power is strong. Keep um, keep connecting with the plebs. If you're listening to this, there's uh, there's a little shill here for Orange Pill app, which uh, I, I really strongly recommend 
people download and, and try and find those plebs that are closest to them. There are plebs lurking closer to you than you realize. And when you make those special in-person relationships, because these relationships we've been building over tens of thousands of kilometers in some cases, halfway around the world, and you can only interact with people um, with them at certain times of the day and generally in DMs, right? You know, the absolute best on a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important to find, uh, you know, this, this social layer of Bitcoin, I suppose, find those in real life, physical contact point moments where you can get to meet each other. Because the conferences are awesome, but then you're gone after two days and you've got the come down to deal with. Whereas if you had the community on your doorstep, which it will eventually be that way, you know, there won't be such a thing as a Bitcoiner one day. <laughs> you know, like it'll be a sad day, but you know, we've got to get there in the meantime. And and building these meetups and um, getting to meet each other in in real life is is very key. Uh, well, and I think there's also just the act of many of us, like for myself, I watched the whole Twitter Bitcoin community evolve for quite a while before I ever put myself out there. And so I still very much, although I saw it evolving, I was still very much kind of lonely in my in my own beliefs because I was just like, I don't know anyone around me who believes and, and kind of like aligns with similar values. And so I really, really encourage, like if you are passionate about Bitcoin, don't wait until you think, you know what, now I have enough information I want to share and talk about Bitcoin. Just talk about it from your own experience. Talk about it no matter what your background is, because I think everyone brings their own unique insight as to like what Bitcoin does for them. And by just being that beacon and putting yourself out there, you'll be amazed at how many people reach out. Even where I live in, in Whistler in British Columbia in Canada, I've had since kind of starting to write and putting myself out there, I've had like five or six like longtime locals that I've never met. They're pro Bitcoin and we now hang out on a regular basis. So like they're definitely out there, but you have to also put yourself out there too. Hey, that's awesome. Yeah, nice little nice little bunch of friends you can go skiing with and get up the top of the mountain and talk Bitcoin. Like did that what a place to do it. Oh yeah. Yeah, 100%. Even like I initially so when I wrote this first article of mine, I had never like to be 100% honest, writing uh, and the traditional educational system, I know you talk a lot about the educational system, I think is very flawed. And so like I dropped out of school when I was 14 years old and I dropped out of English when I was like 12 because it just it did not jive with me as an individual and so I started writing basically two and a bit years ago uh, and that's the first thing I'd ever written in my life and so (laughs) I used a lot of Grammarly and autocorrect to be able to spell check my work but it's one of those things that and if I hadn't put myself out there I don't know where I'd be right now I would still be very passionate about Bitcoin but Greg reached out and now Greg and I Greg Foss we've been skiing and it's phenomenal meeting these people that you really uh admire and they're making a difference in this world when you just put yourself out there it's such a humble community that wants to connect with one another and meet up it's phenomenal well it let's talk about your writing and um well the one i've got in front of me is titled the surprising solution to our downfall in culture and authenticity was that the first piece you ever wrote no i was gonna say that would have been an humdinger (laughs) no it's you know what over, I think I'm probably at about maybe 12 or 13 like solid pieces with many smaller pieces now. But it's one of those things that over this journey and as you start diving into money, one of the most like profound insights that I've personally come across is that everything is downstream of money. When you impact the money, you impact every single aspect of society. And so when we say 
the, the, the meme Bitcoin fixes this. I don't think people sometimes just see it as a joke, but they don't really realize that if you fix the money, it really does reverberate through every aspect of society. And so this is what I've really started to notice in all of my writing. I've started to kind of find my own sense of what, of how I see kind of the world operates. And I could be wrong in that, but I see my sense of how the world operates. And so I'm really trying to explore this idea. Like if we distort this, what happens here? And, and that's kind of what I like to touch on. Okay. Well, th this is a very personal piece and, um, you know, very brave of you to to publish because there's a lot of a lot of your early life in there and um, very um, forming experiences. Uh, did you mind if you if we back up to that point in your life and then we'll use that exactly. as a jumping off point and um, we can start getting people to to get to know you a little bit and your frame of mind and then we'll you know we'll, we'll just kind of use that article as kind of a guide, I suppose. Uh, mm -hmm. So go for it. Yeah, I mean, you start about talking about how you grew up and in what you believe to be a typical household. For sure. So it's really tough because I think that when we are younger, our upbringing is relative. Like we only know the upbringing that we have. And so I don't think we understand the importance of our parental relationships. And so in this article, I kind of discuss how like as a child, my parents separated when I was about four or five years old. And I was very much passionate about mountain biking and the outdoor kind of the outdoor sports. And I just absolutely loved it. And although I had a lot of support from my mum, my dad being like a very traditionalist, Brit, uh, like a British traditionalist, he was just like, you know what, I want you to go into accounting or law, do something more academic. And that just wasn't who I was in, as, as an individual. And because of that, he very much I felt as if he brushed me off as an individual. He didn't really want much to do with me. He'd invite my other brothers over for dinner and then I would kind of just end up spending most of my time with my mom. And so I just took this as, well, most kids go through similar experiences. And what I started to realize as an adult is that, yeah, I was facing like bounce of depression or anxiety, or I noticed that even I got diagnosed with ADHD. And I'm just like, oh, well, these, these are all just things that people have. They're from our environment. But what you start to realize is that that's not necessarily true. We are who we are because of our upbringing and the environment at which we were kind of raised in. And so when you start to realize this, you're just like, huh, if you can alter your environment, then you can alter the outcomes. And so the way I like to think about it is if we take ourselves kind of step back out of me for a second and just think about humans in general, well, humans in general, we are generalists. Like when we are born, we we don't need okay i should say animals when they're born they don't need much nurturing so they're able to basically pop out of the womb and they have such innate skills of survival and because of that uh they don't necessarily they're able to do such phenomenal things like if you hold a dog above water it knows how to swim within like three four weeks of being born whereas like a human if you drop a human into water at three four weeks there is no chance that it's going to be able to swim whereas humans what we are phenomenal at doing is learning skills and growing as individuals. But because of that, we're not necessarily great. We're not born with any innate skills. And so what we need is a foundation that allows us to grow as an individual. And that foundation comes from our parents. Our parents are so important. And so there's a quote in my article, which I say, a child's early attachments and experiences are crucial as they determine how well our brain's architecture and neural networks will mature. And so because most of our brain growth, actually three quarters of all of our brain growth happens outside the womb, the environment to which we live in 
and our parents, how they interact with us is going to make a huge difference on how we grow up and our ability to interact in this world. And so the way I think about it is when I look at my own personal experience, I was in a situation whereby I couldn't really express myself because my dad would put me down. And so when I thought about man and biking, when I thought about the things that I was passionate about, I felt guilt and I felt shame around those things. And so I slowly learned to suppress those things. And so later in life, when I started digging into uh, mental illness and trauma, I realized, well, what is depression? Depression is just the depressing of emotions. So if we're just depressing those emotions and they and we do not express them, they're going to show themselves in other forms. It could be depression, it could be illness. And so I really recognize that uh, my personal upbringing has led to many of the issues that I experienced because I was not able to express myself fully. I was not able to express myself in the way that I wanted to because I was suppressed by my my, my father. How did you find that out what what resources were you using to go down that rabbit hole of you know looking into trauma and and depression and and things like that it's you know what i wouldn't necessarily say that i think in hindsight sometimes you see these like clear narratives and you're just like ah oh, that makes sense but i think that the reality is that over time i've always been um an inquisitive learner I didn't realize this in school. I really struggled through school and I, it did not align with me. And when I left school, I thought that I was I was an idiot. I thought I was just like, I cannot learn. I'm just, I'm here for sports. I can do sports. I enjoy that. But then once I actually left school and I started to find things that I was passionate about, I realized that, man, I can just like burn through information and I can absorb content. I just got to absorb the content that I'm passionate about. And school just did not resonate because I was not passionate. And so I think that, through this kind of seeking of finding things that I'm interested in, I slowly dived into like psychology and I dived into trauma and I dived into mental illness because I find those things really fascinating. May probably because I myself have tendencies for little snippets of those little things. And so when you start diving into how the brain works, when you start diving into how our environment basically determines our, our outcomes, you start to realize that actually like all of this stuff is interlinked. And so I think that for me, this was huge. It's kind of like that, that realization with money. When I realized that everything is downstream of money, uh, you realize that from childhood, everything is downstream of like our upbringing and our ability to express ourselves. So if we as individuals do not have the full capacity to express ourselves, that leads to downstream implications. And this is the same with our money. If as an individual, we cannot spend our money where we want to, if we cannot monetarily express ourselves in the ways we want to, we have repercussions in all these different areas of society. And so this is where this article kind of came about because I started realizing that all of this is connected. Like when you start distorting this kind of these important areas of your life or these important uh, things in society, such as money, they create huge reverberations. So when we met in Prague, we got very very quickly talking about um, Dr. Gabor Mate and his book, Hold On To Your Kids. And I can't remember how we got there. So, uh, um, well, I think I'd given a talk about that. Yeah, I had. I'd given a talk about education. So had you. I think our, our chats might have even clashed. So I'm not even sure if we if we got to see each other's uh, talks. But obviously, we were there to talk about that um, during that part of the conference. And a big shout out to Peter Young at Free Cities Foundation that put on a great conference, Liberty in Our Lifetime. Um, and listening to you there, uh, and you said at the beginning of the show, 
the listeners are probably aware of my views on the education system. Um, yours clearly align with mine. And when you think about what's going on today, right now, with families around the world, where women are having babies and giving those babies across to somebody else to bring up, sometimes within three to six months of having that child, so they can go back to work. Because one, they've been tricked into believing that they're, you know, the sunk cost fallacy of getting that partnership at the law firm has defined who they are. And that's far more important than bringing up a baby. Or two, they absolutely have to because of the economic environment in which they find themselves in. This is so yeah. damaging. This is like when we're talking about an attack on the family, this is what this is exactly what we're referencing. This idea of somebody else bringing up your children and that somebody else usually being the state from the age of three or five years of age once they've um, come of that acceptable age to go to the local state school. I think that you, you touch on such a good point there. And, and it's just, I, f I fully, fully resonate because I don't think people recognize that. So before the age of seven, we have a lot more what's called theta activity in our brain. And theta activity basically means that we take the world as it is. We cannot overlay our own thoughts and experiences. And so the example I give is, let's just say like I pull something out of the fridge and I drop it on the floor. If my parents were to say, oh my God, you're an idiot. They don't mean it as in like, I'm a literal idiot. What they mean is like, I oh, just drop something on the floor and they're kind of playing a joke that, yeah, you're an idiot. But we below the age of seven take that literally. Whereas after the age of seven, we're able to apply our own uh, kind of filter on top of that to recognize that that is only circumstantial given what I just did. And so this is really important because what ends up happening is that at a really young age, before we even remember our memories, uh, we have our implicit and explicit neural circuits. And so if at a young age, our parents don't want to, whether it's breastfeeding or they're putting us in school or whether they're kind of giving us off to the nanny, well, they have to work. That's telling us we're not able to recognize that, hey, my mom has to go off and work. We are taking that personally, that there is a connection issue. I need that attachment to my mom. And instead, or I need that attention to my mom and my dad. And instead, they're leaving me with someone else. And so we take that personally. We take that very much as it is at face value. We do not have any ability to override that and look at the reasons why. And so I think that this is very much leading to the issues we face in society today, where we have ADHD, we have depression, we have anxiety, we have rising rates of obesity, because more and more, we are looking to our peers for acceptance, rather than looking to our parents for acceptance. And this is huge, because although as an adult, our peer relationships are incredibly important, as a child, those peer relationships are very superficial. All we want is we want to try and fit in. And so we will act the same. We will speak the same. We'll have the same mannerisms. And we will suppress who we are through fear of rejection. And I think that this is massive because as parents, if we're giving our kids off to someone else, then they're going to look to their peers for acceptance. And if they're looking to their peers for acceptance, they're building superficial relationships and they're not learning who they are and what their needs are because they're trying to meet the needs of others. Look at uh, pretty much any UK politician, certainly past the, the, the past handful of uh, prime ministers, 
boarding school boys removed from the home, building superficial relationships, like now running a country. I mean, look at Boris Johnson. What what an an absolute mess of a human being. Hundred percent. Yeah, and 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 it's and it's one of those things that I don't think people realize how much these little points of connection mean to these kids. And it's even going down to the point where when it comes to like breastfeeding, for instance, like we see how much the monetary system is distorting our food and drug systems. And so when our food and drug industries are being distorted by money and people are looking to profit off everything, we are seeing the rise in, and I write about this in the article, we're seeing the rise in like baby formula. And so a lot of parents are just like, hey, I think I know what's best. I'm going to feed my kid baby formula. But what the baby doesn't realize is that, well, the mum has just basically taken the kid and given it a bottle rather than holding that kid and nurturing that kid and breastfeeding that kid. And even when I look at, when I speak to my mum, she said when, she, when I was born, I was premature and I had to go into an incubator. And she was like, do not feed him uh, formula because the formula is just full of sugar and full of crap. And it becomes really addictive for these kids and they don't want to go to the breast and build that connection. And so all of a sudden, uh, you're impeding and you're impacting our parent-child bond from the moment we are born. Before the kid experiences anything else, the first thing they get given is a bottle. And so my mom said this to the doctors and the doctors went behind their back and still ended up giving me formula. And my mom was just like, come on guys. Like, uh, And she had to like forcefully basically take me out of the incubator to breastfeed me or else the doctors would have kept giving me formula and it's just like this is it's pernicious it's throughout every aspect of society now our money is seeping into things and it's breaking down our bonds in society and i don't think people necessarily realize this there's also also a shit ton of estrogen in that baby formula as well yeah so you are really doing so much damage and so much harm not only to like the hormonal development of a newborn child that has absolutely no idea that body's got no idea of what it's being bombarded with instead of just full-on colostrum and mum's milk it's getting everything you just described the sugars all of the other crap now the estrogen as well and breaking that bond and i just cannot see how it's not done purposefully there's insidious intent here and it's not from the nurses because they're just doing as they're trained but there's the intent in the training and this is all stemming back to this uh, medical pharmaceutical agricultural complex which uh, modern tea man takes a slim as, as talked about before uh, it's about breaking that bond with the family as soon as possible and but because if now as a newborn mother, you've got to spend the next three years buying formula that is manufactured by a pharmaceutical company that has given the training to the nurse on how to correctly bottle food a baby, baby formula and come up with some kind of bullshit line to the mother, the brand new mother, who's going to believe anything that they're pretty much told unless they're strong like yours, who just knows intuitively like, no, this, this, this baby needs to be on the breast. It just gets you angry, mate. When 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 you connect all of these dots together and you can see what's been going on, just for money and control. Hundred percent. And I think one of the biggest things is, I do believe, I do believe that for most people, we have an inherent desire to want to do what's best. The problem is 
we are misguided because we don't see reality as it is. And if we're not seeing reality as it is, because we're not seeing if people are being silenced, if people who are trying to truly make a big difference in this world have no voice online, it's really hard for those that are actually seeking truth to realize what that truth is. And that's the thing that's just so challenging. And I think the other thing is when it comes to science, what's happening, and we've seen this throughout history. And actually, I'm reading a book right now that's really fascinating because it's looking at how we used to, like death was not something that used to be feared. And in Eastern culture, death is not something that is feared. When you have extended family, we look up to these elders. You realize how much knowledge they have throughout life. And, and a lot of these elders aren't necessarily fearful of moving on. But in the Western culture, through around like the 1920s, when we saw the boom in medicalization and pharmaceuticals, all of a sudden they realized they can profit from this industry. So if they can profit from this industry and create a fear of death, then all of a sudden people are going to want pharmaceuticals people are going to want interventions people are going to want to go to hospital because i need to extend my life i don't want to die and so all of a sudden you've created this industry that is built on fear and a lot of this again it stems from the money it is people chasing profit it is people chasing profit and impeding our ability to kind of go down the path that we need to go down or, or the natural path at which we're trend down and so we're we're kind of impeding natural evolution evolution is that the strong will survive whereas now we're just trying to push push the weak to live longer, push the, those that actually are detrimental to society to continue to suck from society. And we're, we're extracting from those that are productive and moving it to those that are unproductive. And it's, and it's, it's challenging and people don't necessarily realize this is happening. And look what's happened today. We have a new gruesome way to die that just landed on our laps to fear everybody up, to sell a certain drug that is quite clearly and evidently doing more damage to people than the actual disease itself. A hundred percent. And so I think like taking it back to like trauma for a second, I think a lot of people associate trauma with physical pain. They associate trauma with an actual incident, which has happened, which is just so unbearable that it's created long lasting effects. But Gabor, there's a really good documentary. I don't know if you've watched it called the wisdom of trauma. And in that he says, uh, children aren't traumatized because they were physically hurt but instead they were alone with their hurt. And I think this is huge because I think a lot of people, they mm -hmm. want to do what is best. They want to give their kids everything they need. And so they go to work to give their kids physical things, materialistic things, but that's not what the kid needs. The kid doesn't need these materialistic things. What the kid needs is parents that are just there for them. Parents that are able to listen to them empathetically and compassionately. So the kid is able to express himself maturely, uh, like in, a, in an emotional, mature fashion. And so if you don't have, if you start breaking down that parent-child bond and that kid is unable to express themselves, that leads to effects down the line. And so an example that I give in this article that I think is really, really fascinating is one of my really good friends, her mom is a nurse. And her mum is just completely absorbed by her job, so much so that she doesn't really get any attention from her mum all the way through her childhood. But what she recognizes is that when she is sick, and this isn't a conscious recognition, this is something unconscious. When she is sick, her mum, being a nurse, suddenly cares for her and gives her attention. So as a child, she learns to become basically, um, what's the word, uh, a hypochondriac because Whenever she is sick, she gets attention from her mum. And this is just a survival instinct. This isn't, this isn't uh, intuitive or cognitive. And so as an adult, this progresses through into her life and she doesn't necessarily realize the effects. And I was on a bike ride with her and she tells me this story whereby she said when she was around like 25, 26, 
Her partner started facing financial issues, so was not able to be there emotionally for her. Her best friend ended up moving to another country, so she lost her best friend. And then she started to get sexually harassed at work. And so all of a sudden, she lost all of those emotional connections, which normally she would be able to express herself uh, and meet her kind of like internal needs. But because she lost them, she suddenly started to get really sick and she started to get ill. And then it's just like, well, why is she getting sick? Why is she getting ill? And it's because as a child, she had learned that if her needs are not being met, when she is sick, her needs will be met. And so you start to realize that our upbringing, the way that our parents interact with us, very much leads to how we are as an adult and the issues we face. And so another example would be, and I'll give kind of one more, which is like ADHD. We mm-hmm. tend to think that ADHD is this thing that kids are born with. And this, this truly fascinated me when I started diving into it. But there is actually no evidence for genetic markers which indicate that you are prone to ADHD. Instead, what Gabor Mate and a few others suggest is that actually ADHD is from our environment and our childhood upbringing. So as individuals, we basically have three responses when we are in an uncomfortable situation. We can fight, but we're, as a child, if we're in an uncomfortable situation, we're not going to fight back our parents when we're three years old. That's not going to happen. We can flight, we can run away. Well, same. If, if I'm three years old, I can't run out of the house. Uh, I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck in this situation. And I cannot fight back and I cannot run. So then there's, then there's fight, flight, or freeze. And so freeze, well, I can freeze and then I can distract myself and take myself out of the uncomfortable situation by cognitively shutting down. What happens as an adult when we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation? We start cognitively shutting down. And that's what ADHD is. It's attention deficit. It is when we find ourselves in situations that are uncomfortable, we cognitively shut down. And so when you start to realize that actually a lot of these, these disorders or these illnesses that we face today they don't stem from our genetics. They don't stem from our environment because we're exposed to chemicals. They stem from our upbringing and they persist very much into our the rest of our life. And so when you start to notice this, rather than trying to suppress it with pharmaceuticals, why not try and change the initial behavior which is causing it? And I, th- I think that is so powerful and profound when, when I started recognizing this. And it's incredible to think that uh, an institution such as school would be a, a key um what's the word i'm looking for catalyst uh for kicking off adhd Mm -hmm. uh you know taking a child away from its parents so so quickly giving it no option to to run giving the child no option to answer back fight back and the only option you have therefore is to freeze and cognitively shut down i suffered from it Mm -hmm. at school uh yesterday just yesterday we had to take care our twins lauren and and samuel to um, what they call here a, a homeschool, excuse me, a, a homeschool control, where they have to face five different teachers and behave like performing monkeys to see if they're in air quotes up to speed with their education because we choose to homeschool them outside. It's it's such nonsense and something I just <laughs> really completely disagree with. Um, but that you know the authorities. That's that's the state hand around your neck and around your child's neck. And the threat of violence being if you've decided to homeschool, then you have to um, adhere to doing these tests. And if they are not seen to be uh, up to speed, then they will be sent back to school or social services will come in and assess. You know, it's just disgusting state behavior. So you have the school pulling these tricks on on kids uh, the, the state pulling um, pulling these 
tricks on kids and families, actually, because the parents suffer just as much as the kids in this situation. You have the pair, uh, the, the, the teachers that sit in there uh, administering the, the menial tasks and asking the questions. And I see what they're doing and they've been trained to do it because as soon as the, the, the kids, you've met Lauren, as soon as she starts answering, they'll let her have a sentence and then they'll interrupt and ask her a different question and then interrupt and ask a different question. They won't let them get into some kind of thought process or pattern or flow because they're just testing all the time. We just want the answer. Just the answer we want. Just the answer we want. Just the answer we want. That's it. And if you don't give us the answer we want, then you're going to fail the test. Mm -hmm. Shut down. Usually a very 100%. communicative, talkative, conversational person, as, as with Samuel, complete shutdown because that's all that's left they can't fight they can't run away cognitive shutdown and yeah. their and their opponent it's one of those is, things that it impedes it impedes oh there you go there was a pause and suddenly i felt like there was a slight lag because of my internet you got it yeah no i was gonna say uh, up against an opponent and an opponent such as a state schooling institution you can't take that on i've tried you can't take that on. They don't listen. But so they create the ADHD. Then I've had Naomi Fisher come on the podcast and talk about this. She's written a whole book about it, Changing Our Minds. I, I, I suggest you you listen to, to that episode if you haven't already, uh, because she used to she used to work um, for the NHS and had to diagnose kids. It was her job to diagnose kids ADHD. And it wasn't until she had a two or three year waiting list outside of her door that she realized this isn't the kids, this is the systems. And she become radicalized herself, but it was her job to, to diagnose this problem for kids because the parents would bring them in and the parents were just begging for a diagnosis because they're at the end of their tether. They can't figure out that they feel as though a complete failure. They are a failure. It's what they feel because there's something wrong with their child. And she said, what happens is, you, you know, the parent gets caught in this brain or blame dilemma. It's either me to blame because I didn't give them enough, whatever it might be. I didn't breastfeed them or I did. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have gone back to work or whatever it is. Right. But that's very hard for people to accept the blame or brain. It's just that there's something wrong with little Timmy's brain and he just needs the Ritalin and everything will be okay. And he can go back to school and this is all good. And the pharmaceutical companies are rubbing their hands because they're creating the problem and then treating the symptom. Mm -hmm. You got a kid I, on a lifetime of ADHD drugs. I, I could not agree more. And, and I think that, this is very much represented in the monetary system as well, whereby like one going back to the ADHD quickly is when you mask the issues, you are not actually trying to understand how this is coming about and how the best path forward, although it may be the harder path and the longer path, the best path forward is how do we alter the environment to best meet the needs of this child rather than masking the issue with drugs. 
And even recently, I was talking to one of the teachers in the school district here. And the teacher was just like, man, I've got this child and this child and this child. And they definitely have ADHD. Like, I just need the teacher, the, the parents to go get get them a Ritalin, uh, Ritalin subscription or prescription so that we can kind of, that kid can calm down. It's just like, that's not the answer. If we're just trying to mask all of these kids that are trying to express themselves and you're just further masking them, we're only going to create an epidemic. And we, I, I would argue we're already in an epidemic. Yeah. And so when it comes to the money, we have the same issue. When you have a monetary printer, all of a sudden, those in positions of power, they don't have to act in the best interest of the populace. They don't have to look long-term at their behavior because they can alleviate short-term pain. And so the problem is we have a world now that has become accustomed to trying to alleviate short-term pain without actually looking at what are the second order and third order effects of doing whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it is Ritalin, whether it is monetary uh, intervention, whatever it may be, there's always going to be effects if we try to alleviate short-term pain. And so this is really where I started to realize that, okay, at the moment when we're looking at money, the reason why it is impacting the parent-child bond is because like more than anything, parents these days, it is so hard to get by. Like over the last 100 years, well, not even over the last 100 years, I'll, I'll give an example. Like in the 1980s, the average house in the US was four times the average wage, whereas now it is seven times the average wage. So all of a sudden, you can see that uh, wages are not keeping up with asset prices. So it is harder for the parents to get ahead and afford that. And where I live here in BC, the average house is 106 times the average wage. That is the average person is never going to be able to buy a house when it's $3 million uh, and they're earning $30,000. That's just never going to happen. And so they have to continue to work just to eke by. And so we have seen over the last 40 to 50 years, the dual income workers, that's when you've got both parents working to survive the family, dual income workers have gone up, I think it's 108% in Canada over the last 40 to 50 years because parents cannot support themselves on a single owner, uh, a single uh, income. And so that means that parents are unable to uh, spend as much time with their kids. And if they're spending less time with their kids, then their kids are looking to their peers. And if their kids are looking to their peers, they're building superficial relationships and they're suppressing their own emotions. And that is huge. And that's leading to the issues when we're seeing 230% increase in obesity over since the 1970s, uh, almost a double the diagnosis of ADHD and 100% increase in rates of depression. And that all started in 1971. And it's just like, what happened in 1971? It's just like, we started to detach from the gold standard. And, and, and I, I think this is fascinating because everything, again, it stems from the money. I almost don't want to go there. Can can we throw like the um there's no other other way to explain it um like the ma the mass shootings or or killings that that we see mm -hmm. um in North America you know it's 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 so it's so sick what's being done to kids in these institutions mhm mm it's yeah, true. What well, you got it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I point this out in, in in the article, which is where it's just I don't think people necessarily realize that. One second, I'll find that little fact, which is just like one in five Americans these days are receiving like mental health diagnoses. Suicide 
is killing like 48,000 individuals in the US and 800,000 people worldwide. And it's the second most common cause of death amongst like 15 to 24 year olds. And drug overdoses claim like 81,000 lives per year. And so when we're looking at things like COVID and when we're looking at the pandemic, it's just like these are like the pandemic is minuscule in comparison to what is happening on these mental health epidemics. It's, it's mind-blowing. I apologize. I feel like there's a slight lag sometimes, so I interrupt you. No, 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 that's fine. Um, yeah, it, it, it's truly um, astounding that um, all of this harm can come from uh, this idea that, you know, give us your kids' minds. Uh, you know, what, what what's the saying? Give me a child until the age of seven and I'll show you the man. It goes something like that. And um, that's exactly what we're doing. And yet, <laughs> well, if you don't care, if you don't send your kids to school, how will they ever socialize? Right? The this, the, the the classic bud against homeschoolers. Um, and it, I have to point out, like you've you call it, uh, you've called it a couple of times here. You you call them you building superficial relationships. I call it forced association. It's not socialization. There's nothing social about being dropped off at a school gate and marched inside and the door locked behind you at the age of five, having no idea why, why you're being taken away from your parents. No idea at all. And randomly put into a classroom of 29 other kids that are now your friends, whether you like mm -hmm. it or not. We will look back on this period of time because we've only been doing this in earnest around, you know, since the late 1800s. This is still a relatively new experiment if you look at, you know, the timeline of human history. And for those people that haven't heard me talk about John Taylor Ghetto, his books are a wonderful place to start if you want to start diving into this. And I would recommend uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction and Dumbing Us Down as two very entry, easy to read, entry level books. Um, from a teacher himself that you know points out all of these things that you've been talking about as well uh, and and bitcoin does fix this we know that do you want to explain to the listeners that uh, are wondering how how does bitcoin fix this for sure and i want to go back just one second before jumping into the bitcoin thing which is that the classic case of like homeschooling you don't get that socialization and there's like a really phenomenal gabor quote which he basically says like maturation requires that the child first becomes unique and separate from other individuals the better differentiated they become the more they are able to mix with others without losing their sense of self and so the thing is when we end up pushing kids into these peer relationships they never develop that sense of self and that's why we have and you notice it on social media this like crowd herd mentality people have no idea who they are as individuals and they're not willing to stand up even i'm part of a uh financial group that meets kind of once every two weeks and we discuss kind of what's going on in the markets and one of them is just like why do you even talk about bitcoin in these things because you're not going to make a difference the world is already trending in that direction and i'm just like because in the end if everyone thinks that then nothing is ever going to change like we've got to stand up and and understand like what our own uniqueness is and what our values are because that's how we create change and we've got to voice those opinions which i think i mentioned at the start anyway uh going back to the kind of the money i think when it comes to Bitcoin, what Bitcoin does is it removes that a uh, uh, that trigger of 
alleviating short-term pain. And so if you remove that trigger of alleviating short-term pain, and when I talk about this in terms of money, what I'm saying is the government cannot just print money. The government cannot just intervene by artificially suppressing whether it's interest rates, flooding their economy full of capital. They cannot do that anymore. So all of a sudden, over time, people now have to look long-term rather than meet those immediate needs. And by looking long-term, that builds prosperity. And that is huge. And I don't think people... People that are outside of the realm of Bitcoin don't necessarily grasp. And although Charlie Munger is not a pro-Bitcoiner, he has a saying that I really value, which is, uh, tell me or show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. If you have the ability, whether it's through pharmaceuticals and masking kids with ADHD or printing money and stimulating the economy in times of stress, if you have the ability to mask the issues, they will only still continue to exist, but this time they're going to exist under the surface and increase fragility and lead to further issues down the line. So all of a sudden, so what Bitcoin does, and sorry, that was a bit of a roundabout way of explaining it. What Bitcoin does is when you've got something that you have to work hard, you have to invest time and energy to obtain Bitcoin, you're going to be a hell of a lot more thoughtful about where you direct your capital when you go to spend it. As a result, you're going to reduce consumption. You're going to direct capital towards those things that are going to truly benefit you. But more importantly, and Jeff Booth talks about this a lot, which is the fact that when we have a world that is technologically advancing, when things are, when everyone is always trying to get more for less. And an example of that would be like, look at Blockbuster. If I wanted to go rent a movie out 15 years ago, I would have to drive to Blockbuster, expending gas and time. I would then have to pay 10 bucks to get one movie. And then I would drive all the way back, expending gas and time. I'd watch the movie. Then I have to take it back to the Blockbuster, expending gas and time, and then drive all the way back home again, expending gas and time. The amount of time and energy to obtain one movie and watch one movie versus Netflix where I can now pay whatever it is, 10 bucks a month, I can receive tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of videos, TV series, movies, and it's all at the touch of a fingertip, uh, at, at my fingertips. You can see how costs have come down over time, and this is what technology does. So if over time, technology is always trying to make things cheaper, well, if you've got a fixed supply of money and everything is coming down in price, then that means our purchasing power over time is going up. That means that we're able to purchase more which means we don't have to work as much and we can spend more time with our kids. And if we don't have to work as much and spend more time with our kids, we can build those relationships where they're not spending as much time with their peers and people can start to mature in a way that is beneficial to them. They can express themselves. And although this is something that takes time, I believe that Bitcoin is one of these things that I'm not trying to rush it. We're not trying to alleviate short-term pain. We're trying to do what is best for society in the long term rather than just press the freaking red button of alleviation. And I think we should probably also say here at this point, um, having peers is not a, a bad thing, right? It's just the forced association mm -hmm. and the superficial friendships. Because once, if all of that happens that you just described, like we were talking about at the beginning here, we have made lifelong friendships in seemingly an instant with complete and total strangers who we've never actually met before who we've managed to share our deepest and most inner thoughts. Like we're doing it right now, and a thousand people are going to listen to this. Right? This, this is crazy. Uh, but you know, we weren't forced to do that. Mm -hmm. This is by our own volition. Um, so you know, like when I, I have this discussion with my with my daughter a lot because she's my oldest daughter. She's the one um, that that chooses to go to school, and she has a big friend group 
And she, oh, my friends have mean everything to me. And I'm like, yeah, well, they will for now. You're like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. And I try and explain it to her exactly the way that the, you, you know, you've just explained it. And it, as a parent, it is finding a very, very fine balance between, um, of course, they're going to have friends and peers and of but you want them to be low time preference friends. This is the, you know, this is where the whole Bitcoin thing comes in and exactly what you just uh, described, low time preference and high time preference. And that comes down to your relationships. And that is again, why so many of her friends, parents relationships have probably completely ended in disaster because not only are they facing economic woes right now, and we all know that that is a biggest strain on the family and a biggest strain on a relationship, but more likely, the whole relationship in the first place was built on a fiat-based relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's really deep to think about. 100%. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's interesting because I think that where people sometimes go wrong is they don't necessarily realize that if their driving goal is to put a roof over their kids heads and they're just trying to work and their kids are looking to their peers when they do spend time together we also have the added distraction of technology and so technology when we're looking at our phones a lot of the time it's not just the the parents who are trying to get the kids off the phones it's also the kids trying to get the attention of the parents who are distracted by technology and so i think that what's really important as parents is it's exactly as you say like friendships are important do not get me wrong and as we get older those friendships are they're our lifeline but as children, that the, the parent-child bond is absolutely vital. And so if we're able to stimulate our kids to the point where we can find out what their interests are and build that rapport with our children, doing the things that they enjoy, finding the things that they that fascinate them, then all of a sudden they will also enjoy hanging out with you just as much as they enjoy hanging out with their friends. And I think that that's where a lot of people, they're just like, Oh, you're gonna. We're gonna come and watch a movie, but you're not really watching a movie. You're just your kids on their phone. You're on your phone. You're not really spending quality time together. And so I think it's really about building that that quality time with your kids to build that relationship, so your kids see benefit not only in their peer relationships but their relationship with their parents. Oh, mate, I tell you what, you're putting the pressure on yourself here to be a pretty good dad, aren't you? I, I've spent a little bit of time parenting because I did date someone with a kid, but I I love <laughs> spending time with kids. And it's always tough because I write about this stuff and I feel like an imposter. And I've read so many of these parenting books and I've spent a lot of time with kids, uh, but hopefully I can live up to it. <laughs> hopefully I can live up to it. This is what makes me so bullish about the future because there are you know young men like yourself uh, and women, obviously, young young Bitcoin women out there that are looking um, to to have babies and start their families. And and Katie the Russian is a perfect example. You know, I met her in Amsterdam this year, and she was traveling with her baby, and um, it was just so great to see that she found a Bitcoiner. That's what she she you know that they fell in love, and immediately the, all they wanted to do was start building a family, and um, she's going to travel and breastfeed that that kid all over the place take everywhere with her and um when i look to the bright orange future where and there's an initiative right now going on in madeira as well where a lot of 
Bitcoiners are, are beginning to take a look at, is this a place where we want to go and, you know, spend more time? Should, should we be looking at moving there because of the, uh, the organization that started and uh, the fact that the, the president there has uh, shown interest in trying to push the education uh, of Bitcoin as hard as he can uh, onto the island. Families are already getting together and building uh, like little homeschool communities. And now that's leaning off of each other's skill set, other Bitcoiners, people that you... But this brings us back around to trust. Is there a certain amount of trust baked in to our community already? I, I feel that there is, because if if that Bitcoiner family turns up and, uh, you know, the dad turns around and says, I can go and teach these kids how to mountain bike down the side, you know, it's like, yeah, you go for it, Seb. Bam. Thank you very much. Or somebody else, I can teach them how to sail or I'm going to teach them how to kayak. Or one of the moms is going to teach them, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, whatever skills, you know, pick one. Um this is how we start rebuilding grassroots communities. Am I crazy for thinking that way? Or is this something that you like to envisage as well? No, I, I envision the exact same thing. And I think that where, when I started kind of diving into Bitcoin, what really caught my eye was the fact that when you have, and I think this is uh, Ross Stevens from Stony, Stony Ridge Capital or whatever it is, he says, a system built on rules instead of rulers. When you have a system that's built on rules instead of rulers, all of a sudden you have a system where you incentivize value creation. If as a nation, you are not offering value, if people do not enjoy living under your rule, then all of a sudden, if you stop paying taxes, that government does not receive capital, it can no longer function, and another one will rise up in its place. And so this happens everywhere in the world. And so if you have a system whereby people are incentivized to create value and make a place uh, habitable, then all of a sudden you're going to see value move to wherever value is created. And that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal because in our current system, people are very much locked into their borders. A lot of their capital is tied into assets, which the government control, mm -hmm. and it prevents people from moving. It prevents people from redirecting their capital towards where value is created. And so this kind of goes back to the fact that one of my like biggest realizations, and, and I should mention like at the moment, this article I'm expanding into a book. And this book, the article is going to be the first two chapters, but there's 12 more chapters. And it basically looks at when you impede money or when you impede the flow of money, you impact everything. And so I kind of talk about how you've got emotional uh, or emotional expression can lead to things like ADHD, depression, anxiety. But then when you have monetary expression, when you impede monetary expression, this leads to other things. It leads to corrupt governments. It leads to breakdowns in financial systems, breakdowns in our food and drug administrations, things like that. And so I think that what is really fascinating is that where, if we can fix the money, if you can fix the money, all of a sudden you create an incentive system for value creation, not value extraction, value creation, where people are incentivized to create value because if they create value, capital will flow towards them. That is not the case in our current society. If you have a button where you can click print, then you do not have to create value. You can click print and you can direct capital where you think is best fit. But the problem is you're going to act in your own best interest. So governments are going to direct capital to wherever they seem or wherever they deem is best. And a lot of the time it's misguided. I wonder if you saw the tweets today from uh, the HM Treasury out of the UK. I haven't seen them yet. No. 
Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, so you've got the HM Treasury account, uh, and it's um uh why is inflation high and how are we going to half it? Grab a coffee and let Chancellor Jeremy Hunt explain. It's the most you know what it's gonna say, right? Um, but the the first thing the first thing on the list of things that are causing inflation, it was COVID. This is the level of education people are being, mm -hmm. you know, given. And you have to think at that point, because first it was COVID, then it was Putin's fault, and then he, and, and three or four other excuses, and the usual thing, right? No, not at any point was it, it's because we've printed 150 billion pounds into the economy. God knows what the number is, actually, um, which has uh, had a downstream effect on the cost of, uh, you know, rising prices. No, of course not. It wouldn't have anything to do with that. So are these people, you know, all right, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's reading from a script, but how complicit is he? Does he actually know he's completely misinforming people and misguiding people and lying? Or is this his complete upbringing through this institution where he actually believes the words that are coming out of his mouth? And if that is the case, these are the people running countries and nation states mm -hmm. around the world. I think that, like, maybe this is too optimistic, but I believe that people, people want to do what is best. And even in the example I, I, I've given a couple of times, and sometimes it grinds people's gears, but I, I think it is, I think it is true, is even if we take Hitler, for example, even though we do not agree with what happened during World War II, I believe that Hitler genuinely thought that the Aryan race was superior. And so by pushing the Aryan race, society is going to be better. Now, of course, that is incredibly misguided. But I think that a lot of these individuals who are in positions of power, they're doing something because they believe it is better, even if they're misguided in their approach. And I think that's the thing that is so, so challenging, is that what Bitcoin does is remove power from these individuals. So they have to act in the best interest of the populace. They cannot be misguided in their approach because if they're misguided in their approach, capital will not flow towards them and they will fall by the wayside. And so I think that this is where we just need to create a system whereby capital will always flow to wherever value is created. And what people don't realize in our current system is they're just like, man, the government does such a good job because they're supporting this area of the economy, or the government does such a good job because they're supporting this demographic of individual. But what they don't realize is that when you print money, let's just say you've got a pizza and I own one quarter of the pizza, there's four slices on that pizza. If I doubled the monetary supply, I have not, I, I don't have two pizzas. I still have one pizza, but now instead of having a quarter of the monetary supply, I know, or a quarter of the pizza, I only have an eighth of the pizza. So I've just had my purchasing power diluted by 50%. I've lost 50% of my purchasing power. And so when the government debases the currency by printing more money and then directing it towards what they deem is best, that value isn't created out of thin air. It comes from us, the currency holders. And so then the question you've got to ask is, who would actually be able to direct capital more efficiently? Those that have got a money printer and who have not invested time and energy into value creation or those who originally had that value and have worked hard for that value and are going to direct capital towards something that provides value to them. And this is where I don't think people realize that when we go down a more of a socialist approach to things, it's incredibly capitally, uh, it's incredibly economically destructive because you are taking capital from those who have worked hard and will be thoughtful about their expenditure 
and directing it towards those that have not had to work hard. And they're just directing it to where they can alleviate pain to ensure that they can stay in their position. And that, that that's a breakdown in the system. That's an immense breakdown in the system. Ah, oh, very, very well summed up, mate. Very well summed up. Now, is there anywhere that we didn't go with this conversation before I start asking you the uh, the final questions? Um, I would say that like for those that are kind of relatively new to Bitcoin, I would say that the most powerful thing you can do is start to recognize that Bitcoin is not just an investment. And even if you just remove Bitcoin and just think about money, like what you start to realize is that everything is downstream of money. So if you are noticing a pattern in society that is trending in a negative direction, try to see if you can connect the dots between how money is impacting this direction at which it's heading. And you'll 99% of the time you realize it's usually money impacting it. And so this is where I find money just so fascinating because it really is like, we tend to think of this thing that is evil, uh, people they are just accumulating money. But in reality, what is money? Well, if we have to expend our time and energy for money, money is essentially, it is basically a store of time. And so when I'm spending my money, all I'm saying is I want to direct my time here and not there. I'm not spending it there because I don't, I, I don't find value in that. I find value in this thing over here. And so what I find fascinating about that is that if money is purely just basically a representation of where people uh, want to direct their time and energy, where value is going to flow, then by distorting that, of course, you're going to see major implications in every aspect of society. So I think the key is to stop looking at money as just this thing that we're interacting with and start realizing that actually it is the flow of time. It is the flow of value in society. It is what people appreciate and what they don't. If money doesn't travel to something, it shows there is not value created there. And so why should we be directing capital there? And so I, I think that, yeah, the, the last thing is just, yeah, go go dive into how money is connected to every aspect of society. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, big shout out to Marty, Fix the Money, Fix the World. I, I that is so it's such a great one-liner such a great meme and um yeah well i gotta ask you if you had one last orange pill left to give to somebody who would you give it to and why man you know what i didn't i completely forgot about this question so i didn't actually think about it before i came on you know what I would, I would actually say Gabor Mate, because Gabor is, he takes a very socialist approach to things. And if you read his most recent book, and so for those not familiar, we've talked about Gabor a few times in this talk. And Gabor is, he is like a doctor, psychologist. He specializes in kind of ADHD, uh, trauma, uh, drug addiction, and a lot of these illnesses that are supposedly genetic. And he looks at them from the sense of it's in our, our environment and our upbringing. And he takes very much the approach of more of the socialist approach and believes that capitalism is to be is to blame with all of the issues that we're facing in society right now. And what I think is really fascinating is that I think it's a mis I think it's misguided. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important as individuals. And again, it kind of goes back to like Nassim Taleb. Nassim said this in a podcast a little while back, and I know a lot of Bitcoiners are not a fan of him, but he said that when it comes to uh, when it comes to like the whole cancel culture. Very much when someone says one thing we don't like, we dismiss them. When in reality, 
Just because someone says one thing we don't like, that doesn't mean they don't have other things to offer. And so I think it is very much about being objective about what people are saying. If there's something that someone doesn't like, just dismiss it. But then that doesn't mean that the next thing they say is not powerful and may provide value to you. And so I think that this is where with Gabor, what he has to offer is phenomenal. His understanding of how we as individuals are a product of our environment and our upbringing and many of the illnesses that we face are not genetic really changed the, my outlook on the world. And so my orange pill would definitely go to him so that he could realize that actually what he talks about, we've got the same instance in our monetary systems. And this is not capitalism. Capitalism is a naturally inherent process whereby people are just trying to create value. And if people are able to create value, then they're going to survive survive above and beyond those that are unable to create value. And so if we're redirecting capital, and that's not to say that people are not going to support people that are underprivileged, but it is more that if we are redirecting the majority of our resources to support fiscal irresponsibility and unproductive capital uses, then that is detrimental to humanity. And we need to ensure that we are being productive as a society. Mate, that's, that's yeah, good shout. And we need to get Gabor a copy of Farrington and uh, Sasha's book, uh, Bitcoin is Venice, because, uh, you know, short essays on the... Past, present, and future of capitalism, I think, is the subtitle, uh, which is, it, yeah, it's a heavy read, but he's uh, he's an intelligent guy. And as 100%. for as for Taleb, what what did he say? Sorry, like uh, he, he ended up saying, and it's and it's tough because it's a very hypocritical thing because yeah, he does not follow Mr. his own advice, Mister Blocker on Twitter himself. Like, what an <laughs> idiot! <laughs> and 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 it's always it's always tough, and I I very much. As an individual, as an individual, I truly believe in like free speech, and I want to be able mm. to say that anybody, no matter what they have to say, whether I agree with it or not, has the right to say what they have to say. And the next step to that is, even if someone says something that I disagree with, that doesn't mean they cannot provide value in some other way. And that's mm-hmm. not to say that, like, yeah, I'm going to spend my time listening to Taleb, but. That's also not to say that his books have provided immense amount of insight to, I think, a lot of the Bitcoin community. When mm-hmm. you start diving into like Black Swan and you start diving into um, uh, Full by Randomness, you really realize that the world, he's incredibly insightful. And and so I think that's just what I kind of want to end with. It's just, I think, as individuals, if we're able to step back and see things for what they are and be objective and not immediately brush off people or follow this whole woke train of cancel culture, I think the world will be a better place. Yeah, I hear you, mate. I hear you. And I I, I feel uh, a lot more empathy towards, um, is that the word I'm looking for? Probably. Um, other than the, the, the outright affinity scammers in the, in the crypto space, it's the poor bastards that are, you know, who've, have been lulled by the siren song, you know, and, and are doing the shilling on behalf of that person and um a misguided that they, they don't realize what they're doing they don't realize the harm they're doing to people by bringing more people in through their multi-level marketing schemes to you know to buy the next shiny cryptocurrency coin or whatever and now they've been promoted to community leader and that they, they don't know it Mm-hmm. because they've not mm-hmm. done the work because if they'd done the work they wouldn't be there in the first place so yeah it's a tough one it's it's so tough and i think that this is where when i say 
Like I don't necessarily believe in cancel culture. However, that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to call someone out and I'm not willing uh, and I'm, I'm always willing to, if someone says something to me that I disagree with, I will always be willing to mention that, hey, I think that it is misguided. And, and to be honest, when you have that back and forth, sometimes you actually realize, no, actually, I'm the one that's misguided. And so I think that that's where, as an individual, and I read it a long time ago, it was something along the lines of, we should always strive to kind of form our opinions at the very last moment, because the moment we form an opinion sometimes, that can then impede our vision of how the world works. And so I think that as, as much as possible, we should try to be objective and see the world as it is. And I know that I've formed opinions on Bitcoin because I think this thing is going to change the world. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of those things that I think we should always be trying to see the world or see reality as it is and trying not to impair it. And, and I'll end with, um, I, I think when it comes to money and how money and kind of socialism impact our behavior, I remember, and I think I mentioned this in my first ever podcast, and I haven't mentioned it since, which is the fact that as a child, I remember in my tough, when I, I, I would say tough for from my perspective, other kids have had far tougher upbringings, but in my like slightly challenging upbringing at points, my dad, I say, well, I say for the scooter for like three months and the scooter was like my prized possession. I, I wanted this specific scooter at the uh, toy store and I was probably about eight or nine years old, say for three months for the scooter. And we walked in there with my two brothers and my dad was like, ah, oh, I feel bad that you're getting a scooter, but your two other brothers aren't getting a scooter. And so he bought my two other brothers a scooter and I had to pay for mine out of my savings of three months. And I realize when I look at the way my brother's relationships with money and my own relationship with money, you see how that impacts them moving forward into life. Like I've got two brothers that are very much pro, uh, pro social interaction, like social interaction is in more of a socialist response. And both of them, are working kind of more lower income jobs and they're struggling to get by and they believe that the answer is just more stimulus and more money and more access to capital which they have not necessarily worked for and and, and it makes me feel upset because i realized that certain behavior as a child led to these certain beliefs whereas i realized how important saving and working hard for something allows you to recognize the importance of money and money is so freaking important. So that's actually, I would argue my orange pill moment at nine years old before Bitcoin was around. That was like my initial orange pill moment. I was going to say that's a touch point. One of those decade before Bitcoin discovery touch points, which I'm trying to explore myself at the moment uh, and put down into words if I can, because that these, these things crop up in almost every interview that I do. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a story from their childhood which primed them for Bitcoin. But like, we didn't even ask that. Like, how did you find the rabbit hole? Like, what, 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 what was your journey there? What made you peek in, fall down? What was, was it like the 15th person? Or you know, what, what was that? You story? know what? To be 100% honest, and I, don't necessarily, I wouldn't say that I have the most fascinating journey. It's, it's more of one of those things where I was always fascinated with, okay, step back. My background has been like a mountain bike instructor. Since about nine years old, I have just been obsessed with mountain biking. It's just, it, it was my life for the first 25 years. Of, well, it, it was just my absolute passion for the first 25 years of my life. And through that, when I started teaching around 16, 17 years old, I started to realize that there are instructors around me that are 
60 years old and they're still teaching full-time they're still working 40 50 hour weeks and it's decimating their body like I, it was hard enough on my body after 10 years of being a mountain bike instructor and i was seeing these individuals that were struggling to get by on a low wage and although they love their job their bodies were crippled they'd had so many injuries and and i realized that i didn't want to be that individual i really did not want to be that individual and my mum grew up in a really tough household and was kind of kicked out of the house at 13 years old and because of that she had to kind of find her own way and one of the ways she found her own way was she started investing in real estate and so she gave me at the age of 14 a book on real estate in new zealand and so it's like it's on my shelf just over there but it's like uh investing in the new zealand market or something like that and it's an, oh, it's like 30 years old this little tiny book and i realized that you know what building financial security is absolutely vital. I need to build financial security. So at the age of kind of uh, uh, 15, 16, I started to look at real estate and read more and more on real estate and investing. And uh, from there, I kind of progressed from real estate and investing. Once I bought my first couple properties, I was able to look at the financial markets. And then I started uh, investing in more short-term time horizons rather than real estate, which is a much longer-term time horizon. And I started looking at the futures markets. And then I traded options for a long time um, and looked at a more traditional value strategy. So I've always been a big fan of Warren Buffett uh, and those guys. But when I started to dig into money, I started to realize that our system is very broken. And I, and I went down the gold rabbit hole for a couple of years I went into how can I protect myself from this, basically this debasement of money. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, one of my big touch points for recognizing this issue was through real vision and Rao Pao. And again, he's not a, yeah. people are not a fan of Rao Pao, but I have to say that again, if you ignore what he said and the information that he's given about Ethereum and, and Axie Infinity and all of these things, when you realize that he has provided an immense amount of value to the financial educational environment and that very much helped me get on the doorstep of recognizing, hey, there is crypto and there's this thing that may potentially allow us to alleviate the effects of monetary intervention. So I started digging into it and I went very briefly down the crypto rabbit hole. And then I quickly honed in on the fact that Bitcoin is this thing that is truly unique and it's truly phenomenal. And I wish I had been able to recognize that when my brother, who was five years younger than me, was investing in it in 2013 to when I say investing, he was buying drugs on the Silk Road. So I wish I'd been able to listen to it then because uh, it definitely would have changed things a little bit. But yeah, that's kind of how I found my way into it is just going down the traditional financial route and then recognizing that, hey, we really do have serious issues in society. And living in Whistler here, I think I mentioned, like the average house is 106 times the average person's wage. That like as an individual, the like there's a house across the road from me and I, do, I, I don't even live in like I live in the average area of Whistler. There's a house across the road that uh, the build cost on it was a hundred million dollars. And it's just <laughs> like, that's just insane. Like, that's just insane. And I just don't know how the average person can survive. And like I'm renting a two bedroom basement suite here and I have friends that uh, are paying 4,000 bucks a month for a studio apartment living. And it's just like, we live in such a incredible area of the world and we're slowly those that are passionate about the outdoors and passionate about uh, trying to give back to society are just getting pushed out. Yeah. You, you can't afford that. Like th yeah. that, That's ridiculous. So when you have these conversations now with, with young people, what would be the equivalent book you would give to a teenager that your mom gave to you? 
You know what? I would probably say like Jeff Booth's book has, when you start to realize how the world works in a very holistic sense, Jeff Booth's book really opened my eyes. Like really, that was one of those tipping points. And I, and I think it has been a tipping point to many individuals. Uh, I think that when you start to recognize that the world is inherently deflationary and it does not actually align with our inflationary world, the only reason why we're experiencing rising prices is because of monetary intervention. If it was not for monetary intervention, prices would be falling and it would be getting easier for individuals to get by. When I realized that, it was just a huge, huge eye-opening moment. And I should also say, like, in addition to the book, the other thing that I think has just been super profound, and I forgot to mention it in my uh, in my kind of orange pilling journey, was the fact that I was very much a massive fan of Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett, someone else who is a huge fan of Warren Buffett, is Preston Pish. And so mm -hmm. I used to listen to the Preston Pish's podcast with Stig Broderson. I listened to them. I've been listening to them for five or six years. And they have very much helped me along my own financial journey. And then initially when Preston started talking about Bitcoin, I wasn't really interested in it. I used to think it was kind of a scam. It was a Ponzi. And then over time, you're just like, man, I really value Preston. I think he's one of the most humble, genuine uh, and caring individuals out there. And so if he has something to say about Bitcoin, I'm going to try and listen. And so I started listening and that Preston, again, massively informed me on my own personal journey. Big shout out. Great names, Preston and Jeff. That's awesome. hundred percent. All right. I need to get, I need to get Jeff to, to gift my 17 year old daughter, a, uh, a, a book. So it doesn't look as though it's come from me. Otherwise she won't read it. So. <laughs> <laughs> what would uh, you say? So t turning that question back on you for a second. Yeah. What would you say if there was one piece of content, whether it's a book, whether it's a podcast, one piece of content that really kind of enlightened you to this idea of Bitcoin what would you say that would be? Hmm. Andreas back in the day, angry Andreas. Bitcoin only angry focused Andreas was oh on fire, you know, uh, just the best, the absolute best. And his book was great because it was just um, an amalgamation of all of his talks or his books. He's he's got two internet, the Internet of Money books. Um, that's what really woke me up. Uh, like you, Real Vision, because back in the early days, uh, when they when they launched, um, I was friends with Grant. Uh, he lived in Singapore, so uh, when they launched, I was one of the early subscribers, and they run Bitcoin. I think as early as 2015, and they had Trace Mayer on and Tour de Mista and uh, Once Cesares. Um, again, like uh, incredible content, incredible content, and. and all of the mainstream finance content as well that they were churning out in, in the early days. Um, and now if I was to, so what, what was great about a conference I went to here in Biarritz uh, in the goodie bags. Um, and because I went with all the family, we ended up with six goodie bags and in the goodie bags, one of the plebs had translated uh, Gigi's book, 21 lessons into French and that was one of the free gifts in the goodie bags and my oldest daughter bought her one of her friends along from school one of her peers and I gifted her the book to give to her dad and um she read the book first which shocked me 
absolutely shocked me and um, got great feedback. And she was then asking more and more questions about it. So then that that's another influence on my daughter, not just me now. But her dad was very thankful for it. He read it and it's made a lot of sense to him. And then all of the other French families that I've given it to have all given me the same feedback. So, oh my God, this makes way more sense now that I've had a chance to read this book in my own language. And this is the importance of uh, translating people's work like yours. And this is what Consensus Network do. So shout out to Nico um, for having all of these books translated into as many different languages as possible. This is how we make it. This is how we get mm -hmm. there. And they're, they're translating Jeff's book as well. Jeff's book is now available in Portuguese. Uh, my book will be available in Portuguese and Spanish soon. Uh, it, it's, they're doing incredible work. And they're, they're just a pleb outfit. Plebs that, that are barely even paid any sats to do. It's got to be harder to translate a book than actually write the damn thing in the first place. Right? You've got to get into somebody's mind and somebody else's flow. And you can't just translate the thing word for word. You've got to transform the book. And because this is what the uh, the Spanish dude was telling me. He's like, yeah, I was in your mind. Like, I feel as though I know all of your family because I had to put myself where you were in six years ago when you were talking about making these decisions. And I've got to convey that in Spanish. And like, Whoa. Like, are you getting paid for this? Like, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's mad. Um, so, yeah, rambling now. But, uh, yeah, big shout out to all the plebs that are doing hard work out there and, um, yeah, thanks, Andreas. A big personal thank you for for those early days and the video content. No, I, it, it never ceases to amaze me at how generous the community is. And this is where I really, I mentioned it at the start. Like, I don't know people that are pro-US dollar and are spending their life trying to educate people about the US dollar. And that's where I'm just like, we have millions of people all around the world. And we only see such a small subset on Twitter when you're involved in kind of the Twitter space or going to these conferences. But there are so many that are so passionate that are not necessarily as vocal publicly that are trying to make a difference in one way or another. And that's just where I see it as a in a sense, an unstoppable force because all of these individuals are coming together and adding their own expertise to try and create change. And, and that change is happening. And people that are outside of the space don't realize it because it is not a mainstream TV. Mm -hmm. 100%. All right, mate. Well, I asked you, it feels like I asked you the final question a half hour ago. We, we rambled a long, long time after that. It's been, um, it's been a great rip. And uh, thank you for coming on. How can the plebs reach out and find you, help you in any way? Is there any ask of them? Um, yeah, just let's leave it on that note. Yeah, you know, um, I kind of, you can find me on sebbunny.com and bunny is b-u-n-n-e-y sebbunny.com is just i write a weekly newsletter a free weekly newsletter that kind of touches on uh how to kind of live in a not so free world these days uh and then i also have looking glass if you're more interested in not just everything surrounding money and life in general and you're more focused on bitcoin then i have looking glass and looking glasses uh you can find us at lookingglasseducation.com and that is founded by myself Daz, the most phenomenal individual, Greg Foss, James Lavish, uh, Pled Music, and uh, a few others. And it's just such a awesome, awesome. I'm so blown away with just kind of the community and how we've all come together to kind of create this platform. Um, and then finally, I mentioned briefly, so I'm writing a book at the moment, um, and that is an expansion on the article that we've been talking about. And that book, I believe, is going to be called Realigning Incentives. 
Uh, and that I hope will have out in the next, let's say six months or so. And the goal of that book is basically just to really highlight that everything is downstream of money. And so although we've touched more on in this art, in this discussion, we've touched more on the emotional and the mental effects of how money impacts us as individuals, it also focuses on, well, how does money impact politics? How does money impact our environment? How does money impact businesses? And when you start recognizing these things, it really is profound. And I think that orange pilling is not just talking about Bitcoin. It is about trying to allow others to recognize that there are so many of these challenges and issues that are emerging, and it's all because of a broken monetary system. Mate, I'm looking forward to reading that. Please um, don't make it a 50,000 pager, though. You know, they're they're no, tough to get through. Nearly done. <laughs> I'm, I'm nearly, it will be, yeah, it'll be a, a thinner book, probably, yeah, it's about 50,000 words, which is a, definitely when you look at the, what is it called? The Bitcoin is Venice. That's yeah. by my bed right now. Oh God. It's about a third, it will be about a third of the size of Bitcoin is Venice. Yeah. Fuck you, Farrington. And your, <laughs> your, your wordsmithing, because yeah, I'm halfway through that at the moment and I've got an interview with him coming up. So I've got to get, I've got to get the hurry up on that. And now I've got Brian DeMint's books as well. Um, he sent me across a Bitcoin um, evangelizing Bitcoin or Bitcoin evangelism, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to read that, read that alongside it. There's always so much to, to plow through. I love them all though. Um, so mm-hmm. there's, uh, you know, there's room for more. And I know Knut's writing another book. This will be his fourth one. And Yoni Appleberg has a book coming out pretty soon. <laughs> it's, it's unreal. And, and what I find so fascinating, and you've probably found the same thing, is when you start looking at the world through that Bitcoin lens, you start realizing that in all of these books that you start reading, you're just like, huh, I see how Bitcoin fits into this, or I see how Bitcoin alters this. And it's, and it's everything. Like when you're reading about psychology, when you're reading about child upbringing, when you're reading about diet and nutrition like all of these things like bitcoin touches all of these different aspects it's freaking fascinating totally mate all right well let's leave it there otherwise we'll, yep. we'll get onto a different subject like selling our balls or something so we, we don't want to go there all right mate <laughs> take care thanks, thanks for coming on see ya well guys thank you so much for listening and thank you seb for coming on the show and sharing all of that information a lot of that was very personal And I'm sure the listeners will appreciate your openness discussing those topics. And kudos to you, man, really, for going so far down the rabbit hole of kids' education and trying to already formulate an idea and an opinion of how you're going to bring up your own kids. This is the Bitcoin way. It truly is. And I'm so bullish for the future of humanity we need more people thinking along these lines if we really want to starve the beast we need to stop feeding it our kids minds and souls is that simple and you don't need to and you won't need to maybe you did in a fiat life but you won't in five to ten years time if you've been stacking you are going to gain your financial freedom and then you can gain your family freedom and then we start redesigning everything from the ground up and it's so damn bullish when i hear young men like seb talking the way he does so thanks everybody for listening as usual please support the show sponsors i actually actually seb is going to come back on the podcast and do a rip with me and john vallis on a book that we've just 
been reading called The Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. So go grab yourself a copy of that book and get ready because the rip's going to be a deep dive into that book. I'm sure you will love it. Uh, but again, please show your um, gratitude towards the show sponsors, Swan Bitcoin, Relay, and Coin Corner, places that you can stack sats. Also, Hoddle Hoddle, peer to peer global trading. Wasabi Wallet, have you? If you want to up your privacy game and play around with a coin join. And then, of course, the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bits and we'll get you 5% discount. I'm now up on Vida because apparently that's better than Linktree. But either way, you can go and find all the links that you want for discounts to lots of different merch from lots of different companies such as Shamari who are making books for really young kids. They're making, oh, they got some big plans, but they're also making the game Shamari as well, a family fun game. You can get some merch from Ungovernable Misfits or Six and Lemon. You can sign up to loads of stuff as well, and you will get a 10% discount at the, at the minimum you'll get a 5% discount. 10% discount on many of the things. Books, for example, from Consensus Network. It's all there. Just hit the link in the show notes. Either Vida or Linktree and scroll through. Find the things that you want. Get to a conference. If you can't get to a conference, start your own mini meetup. Join Orange Pill app. Why wouldn't you do that? You can join on Android or iOS Apple Store. You will have to pay. You definitely will have to pay because we do not want any crypto bros shit coiners or spam bots in there so we want it pure signal that's what it's there for to make meetings happen in real life with your fellow plebs have a great day morning afternoon whatever the time it is wherever you are listening to this right now look forward to catching any of you at any of the conferences coming up for example, BTC Prague is going to be huge in June. Miami is always massive in May. And Liberty in Our Lifetime is going to drop again, which is where I met Seb originally. That's going to be in October. All of these conferences, you'll be able to get links using the or discounts using the code BITTEN. Take care, guys. Catch you on the next show.